Uh, if you've been here at any time in the last year, you know we've been in this series through the book of Acts. We took a break for a vision series, but now we're back in it. And last week, Pastor John in Acts chapter 15 uh, took us to this Jerusalem council where uh, they began to really bring some clarity, especially for the Jews and the Gentiles, understanding this law gospel paradigm and, and what that would mean kind of moving forward. And so this morning where we find ourselves in Acts chapter 16 uh, is the kind of the second way because they finally made this clarity uh, of this law gospel paradigm. Um, we've made some clarity there. Now this gospel is going to go out to the Gentiles uh, and really is the wave that brought the gospel to us. Uh, and so this is good news that we get to rest in today. Uh, and in, uh, in, in our time this morning, too, I just, we're not going to have time to, to do everything in this passage. Uh, and so I'd love to have a discussion with you over some of these things. We're going to jump right into verse 11 here in just a moment. But what we find in the first 10 verses is Paul and Silas, and they meet up with Timothy at this point. And obviously in this passage you'll see this because of the pronoun use of we. That Luke is probably there as well, although he's not mentioned in, this, in, in the text. They're going west, uh, west Lloyd, right? They're going west and they are um, uh, being directed by the sovereign hand of God. God's telling them, no, you're not going in these places, but you're going to go in these places in this this mysterious man uh, in Macedonia, or, or from Macedonia, gives this call for Paul to, to continue to go west. Uh, and so they find themselves in Philippi. And the thing I think about Philippi, you know, I, I, I'm not like insanely well-traveled, but I've been to a lot of cities in the U.S., uh, you know, everything from west coast, east coast, uh, and cities all around. I've been in, in several cities internationally. Um, and one thing I always think about when I think about, especially this, as I read through Philip, uh, thinking about the church at Philippi and uh, this area of Thyatira where uh, Lydia is from, and we're going to see her. I got to thinking about my my first time I ever went to New York City. Uh, I don't know if any of you have ever been there. Uh, you'll kind of know what this experience is like. You go, and of course, you know, great restaurants almost in every corner, all these local places. But you walk down one street. And you may hear Mandarin. Turn the corner, you'll hear a different dialect of, of Chinese, maybe Cantonese. And then you turn another corner and you'll find a Jamaican population. And you, you see this, this, it's kind of this, uh, this melting pot of a number of cultures, a number of ethnic groups. And, and I've never experienced anything like that than the times I've been in New York City. Uh, and, and if you've never been, that's something I think you'll, you'll take away from your time there. And, and that's exactly kind of what's happening here in Philippi. Philippi is a port city in the Western world, and it was a major thoroughfare. It had people from all over the known world would gather and find their way into this church at Philippi. And so as we read through the passage this morning, my prayer is that we are stirred by hearing about these different salvation encounters. How God is coming to snatch out people that he has elected before the foundations of the world. People from different tribes, different tongues, uh, you know, for his glory. 
And we'll see that in three separate salvation stories this morning. And, and my prayer is that you see a little bit of yourself in these stories. And that you see a little bit about what God is doing uh, by bringing people from different places with different backgrounds. Uh, and so let's just jump right in to uh, verse 11. And then I'll pray for us and we'll continue on. The word reads this way, Acts 16, verse 11. So setting sail from Trujas, we made a direct voyage uh, to Samothrace, and the following day to ne uh, Neapolis, and there to Philippi, which is a leading city in the district of Macedonia and a Roman colony. Uh, we remained in this city some days, and on the Sabbath day, we went outside the gate to the riverside, where we, uh, where we uh, uh, supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had come together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods who was a worshiper of God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention and to what was said by Paul. And after she was baptized, and her whole household as well, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come to my house and stay. And she prevailed upon us. Uh, this idea of prevailing means they had no choice. They were going to Lydia's house. <laughs> um, and so let's talk about Lydia for just a moment. Um, well, let me pray for us, and then we'll, well, I guess we'll jump back in. I need that help. Uh, Gracious God, our Father, we love you. We thank you for your word that, 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 uh, that came and reigned in our hearts and our minds. Father, we know that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word uh, of the Lord stands forever. So God, I pray that you would open our eyes to see, open our ears to hear, open our minds to understand. And Father, open, stir our hearts, Father, to love and good work. Stir us to be encouraged in our faith of what you have done for us in Christ. And we ask all that in Christ's name. Amen. Uh, so let's talk about Lydia. Um, here's what we know about Lydia. Uh, we know that she is religious. She is moral. Um, and she has done very well for herself in the domain of fashion. and uh, Fashion design. She was from Thyatira, which was a massive port city in the ancient world. Um, and she's uh, currently now in Philippi. Uh, and it may be helpful for us, again, to think about maybe cities like New York and, and Paris, uh, especially in the terms of the way fashion, uh, the fashion industry works. And it goes out uh, from there and it really impacts every other, you know, place on, on the earth. Uh, you know, maybe London uh, for that. And so cities uh, that help shape the the economic force of the world uh, are cities like Thyatira and Philippi. And guess what? She's got a house in both these joints. Okay? She's doing pretty well for herself. Uh, and, and we know that she is religious. She has rejected Roman paganism. She's saying there's not a bunch of gods. There's only one God. And, and I think that these Jews are on to something. And so she's morally conservative, she's upright, she's going to Bible studies on the Sabbath, 
And, and, and so at, at this ladies' Bible study where they've just popped in the new uh, DVD by Beth Moore, uh, it, it's interrupted by Paul and Silas. And, and Paul begins to speak into this, this, this gathering. And, uh, and so she, the, Lord, the Bible says that, that the Lord opened Lydia's eyes to see Christ. And she believes and she is baptized. So what you have here is a successful businesswoman who is moral and religious, and she's at church. But she's not necessarily a follower of Christ. So before this moment, she's not laid her yes down and proclaimed that Jesus is Lord. She's not saying that, that, that Jesus is going to shape every fabric and, and, and every fiber of her, of her being. Um, and, and yet, it is in this moment that Jesus steps in and lifts the veil from her eyes so that she can see and marvel and treasure Christ for the first time. And, and, and she sees the beauty of the gospel. And I think such were some of us, right? And when I say that, I don't mean that you... Were a woman who owned a house in London and in New York or Paris, or that you worked in the fashion industry, or that you lived these moral lives. I am saying that this is some of us in that we were religious, morally good according to the world standards, whatever that is, right? And, and, and that is where Jesus found us. We were Christmas and Easter kind of people, just good folk. Uh, we saw ourselves in comparison to others, and we looked pretty good. And in the middle of that, Jesus saves us. He rescues us. Uh, and there was a turn there from us no longer just looking at ourselves as being good church folk to all of a sudden uh, being my whole life is about Christ. I want to be like Christ. And so with this, I think, comes the first thing that I want us to take away from this passage. And that is through faithful proclamation of the gospel, the Lord sovereignly opens the eyes, uh, opens eyes and saves those who are religiously moral and unknowingly condemned. My assumption, that is, if I polled this room... Uh, there would be many who could identify with Lydia. Almost assuredly, everyone in this room knows someone like this in your life. You know people who are moral people, kind of good people, but there's no real fruit that would testify that they are, in fact, followers of Christ. We don't have time, again, I think to hit every portion of this passage, but I do think it's, it's, it's worth our time to think about this for a moment, Lydia has an encounter, right? What's the first thing she does? She, she invites Paul and Silas into her home. She begins to show this gospel hospitality, which is manifesting out of her salvation. And Lydia, Lydia immediately began to use her resources for gospel ministry. She immediately began exercising her gift of hospitality. 
Well, there's so much here for us to kind of stir in. And we could, in fact, have a complete sermon. And this is the kind of stuff that I like to talk about over coffee with people. So this is something I would definitely love to do with you. But God is showing this idea that God has shown hospitality to us as we were once rebel, sinners, you know, running from God. But God not only invites us into his home, he makes us part of the family and he gives us a seat at the table and he gives us inheritance. So Lydia, as she has encountered the hospitality of God, turns around and extends gospel hospitality to Paul and Silas. And I love what the text says. She prevailed upon us. Meaning she was not going to take no. You're coming to my house. We're going to have chicken salad. You know. You're coming. And so we had to move on. Uh, so, so the next woman that we see has nothing in common with Lydia. With the exception of maybe sharing the same gender. Verse 16. As we were going to the place of prayer... We were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination. Um, as actually the Greek word there is where we get the word python from. Uh, so she's demon-possessed and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, uh, These men are servants of the Most High God, who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the Spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. But when her owners saw that their uh, hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. So in the end, she is following Paul and Silas uh, and possibly Timothy, probably Luke at this point, because of the pronoun we that he's using throughout this, this section. We know this. Uh, we, we, we see that this slave girl is mocking and being a distraction to the furtherance of the gospel. So she, Paul and Silas are preaching, and, and, and she's kind of following them around. Um, and, um, you know, so she's not trying to support, but she's trying to distract. And Paul, I love this, he gets fed up. And the Bible says he got annoyed. I mean, that's real talk right there. I mean, he got annoyed. And, and, and he commands the spirit inside of her to, to get out. And in that very hour, uh, she does. Now, again, there's some debate over this passage. Some argue that because the text doesn't explicitly say she came to know Christ, whether or not she actually became a Christian. Um, but I personally think uh, that she did. Uh, and, I, and I base this off of some, what Jesus taught about demon possession and what it means when, some, when a spirit is cast out. So let's look really quickly at Matthew 12. You don't have to turn there. I've got it up on the screen. Matthew 12, 43. Jesus says, When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person... It passes through waterless places, seeking rest, but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house. Talking about the person it left, right? I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put to order. And then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits, more evil than itself. 
and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. So also will it be with this evil generation. And so here, here's what we find. We have Jesus teaching us how the demonic forces work. If an evil spirit is cast out, something good has to take its place. Okay? And, and if it doesn't, if nothing else moves in, then what Jesus is saying here, the evil spirit will return. And not only will the evil spirit return, he's going to return with friends. And they will go in back in, and the text says they will be worse off than they were than before the first time the demon was cast out. Does that make sense? And so here, in this case, the slave girl, her owners, realizing that the spirits have been cast out, they can no longer make money from her, meaning she's not going to be fortune-telling anymore. She's not going to be doing these things. And so we can make observation that something else has moved into the house. Something else has occupied the house so that the spirits, the evil spirits, couldn't come back in. Now, there's lots of mystery here. I'm not going to claim to be the resident expert in these things. I don't, I don't know. This is just my observation, my interpretation of this passage, that I believe this sweet little girl, this sweet little slave girl that we see here, is now in the family of God. Now, if I were to poll this room and ask how many of you were demon-possessed, fortune-tellers, um, who happen to be slaves, my guess is that there would maybe be, I don't know, two of you. I'm, I'm kidding, I have no idea. But in all seriousness, uh, you know, let's kind of think about this for a moment. My guess is that there's not many who were former slaves given to uh, divination, maybe not fortune tellers, demon-possessed people. M maybe there is. Uh, but, but here's really the heart of her ish issue. Either by her own steps or by the force of others, she has given herself over to a type of licentious depravity that has just consumed her life. And I love that this girl's story is right after Lydia's because it's so different. Lydia, put together, she's driven She's brilliant, she's savvy, wealthy, well-known, well-respected. And Jesus steps right into her mess, which is a mess, and saves her. And just after is this girl, completely busted up, taken advantage of, abused, given over to licentiousness, and Jesus steps right into that place where she is and rescues her. And so some of us have got, maybe have no way of relating with Lydia. And we look at Lydia and think, well, that's nice. I'm glad that's your story. But, but for some of us, Jesus came and found us in darker places. Uh, he found us in darker places than first century uh, Beth Moore Bible studies. All right? Jesus found us in the nastiness of maybe drugs or alcohol, and he found us in 
the nastiness of a type of sexual licentiousness that, that wreaked havoc in our world, uh, and we, cheated, we treated ourselves cheaply. For some of us, God met us in some of the most horrific, dark places. And for some of us, uh, we can't relate with Lydia, but we hear about Jesus stepping into the dark space, and we think, that's my story. That's, that's me. That's where Christ found me. Uh, that's where he ransomed me. He stepped into my uncleanness and he ransomed me. And, and there are some of us here that can say, yeah, that's my story. Now there's more here. And when it, what ends up happening here is Paul and Silas are arrested. And they're taken before the rulers uh, and the rulers decide to put them in jail. And so they call the jailer, and they tell the jailer, put them in jail, and we'll deal with it. And the jailer doesn't just put them in jail. Uh, he places them in the innermost cell, and he puts them in shocks and chains. And so the innermost part of the jail in ancient Rome would have been a place uh, a little bit lower than the rest of the jails, Right? Um, and think about this, all the human waste would have gone downhill and, and it would have settled in this kind of inner place uh, and that's where Paul and Silas are and the jailer has put them in stocks, put them in these devices that, that put your body in positions that, that aren't natural and most certainly very, very uncomfortable. And so the jailer didn't do this by order, uh, but he did this by desire. And so this brother is a bit busted up and demented himself. And so Paul and Silas are beaten, they're mocked, they're in prison. Uh, and, you know, here's something that's a bit of a theme in the book of Acts. Uh, if you ever want an earthquake to happen in your place of residence, uh, then lock up one of the apostles. Um, and, and, you know, the apostles, they don't need Jason Bourne or SEAL Team 6 to come in to rescue them. Uh, you know, in these cases, we see this rumbling of the earth, and stuff just starts falling apart, doors open, and they are able to just walk right on out. Uh, this happens over and over, not only literally, but also figuratively. God breaking chains, breaking the foundations of a hardened heart, giving us new hearts. Man, this theme is all throughout the book of Acts. So what happens next? Let's pick up in verse 27. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, uh, by the way, they were there, they began to, what do you do when you're in prison uh, and you're beaten and persecuted? Well, you sing. Uh, you sing and you praise and you bring glory to God for his great salvation. And so when the jailer woke and saw the, the, the door the doors were open. This is after the, the, the earthquake. Uh, and he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried with a loud voice, Do not harm yourself, for we are all here. And the jailer called for lights and rushed in, and trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. Then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? 
And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them that same hour of the night and washed their wounds, and he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them out, brought them up into his house, and set food before them, and he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. Again, gospel hospitality, recognizing that you've been invited into the home of God, manifests itself out in gospel hospitality to others. Again, another sermon. But historically speaking, what we find in major metropolitan areas of the ancient world, uh, much like here at Philippi, the jailer uh, in these jails would almost certainly have been a former uh, highly decorated Roman soldier who as a gift of retirement kind of given these uh, you know, GS-15 kind of jobs. Or you just, oh, sorry, this is probably, yeah, I know there's a bunch of you in here. I'm sorry. I'm not saying that you're, you're just kind of coasting, you're just enjoying. I'm not saying that, okay? Uh, but what happened is, is Paul has retired from the military, and they've given him a pretty cush, I mean, not Paul, the jailer, given him a pretty cush job, right? His health care is taken, he's taken, he's taken well care of. And now one thing that is, uh, you know, I can say I've, dealt with in my life, just some background, um, you know, you know, are men kind of like, like this jailer. Chances are he's seen lots of stuff that isn't very easy to forget. Uh, things that have shaped his reality and view of the life uh, and, and what life is really like in this world. Uh, you know, Rome was not known for, you know, being the, the government that passed out Girl Scout cookies and flowers. They were known to be very, very brutal. And they would go into cities and totally ransack cities, killing men, women, and children in conquest for land and prosperity. Uh, and so chances are, this Roman soldier, ex-Roman soldier, has probably seen some stuff, if you know what I mean. He's probably been a part of some stuff that's shaped him uh, tremendously. You know, today we call this PTSD, uh, where, you know, young men and women are coming back uh, from war, and, and, and they are, their, their reality is shaped by the things they have experienced and seen. And so they come back, oftentimes like this, they're, they're aggressive, and they can't get out of their own head of what they've seen, what they've done. And our brother here, the jailer, uh, it's evident for how he responds to Paul and Silas that he's, he's pretty jacked up. He's pretty broken. Uh, you know, a simple order to put them in jail turns into all the things that we mentioned. And he shows that he was a man filled with bitterness, filled with anger, with, with rage. And it's in this place where Jesus steps in and rescues him. And that's the story of some of us. Some of us were bitter, angry at something that happened earlier in our life. Maybe something we participated in earlier in life, but we, but we, don't, want to, we don't want to own it. We don't want to talk about it. 
We just want to cover it up and we let it take control over our minds and emotions. You know, sometimes it's this, this manifests itself out in hurting others around us. And the common response from these types of people is, you know, you wouldn't understand. So they just grow bitterness. They grow in bitterness. They grow in anger. And for some of us, God steps into those places and rescues us from these kinds of dark places. And so with the slave girl and with uh, the jailer, I want to make the second point. That through the power of the gospel... God rescues some people out of seriously broken situations and frees them to live for his glory. And I love in this exchange, when the jailer is asked about being saved, Paul and Silas didn't just tell him to get his life together. They showed him grace. And I think about this quote from uh, R.C. Sproul, uh, who said, they did not list the Ten Commandments to him to live a good life from then on. They told, they told him, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, you and your household. They told him what was essential. That, it is, that, that, that is not only what you must do, Mr. Jailer, but, but that is what everybody has to do to be saved in modern evangelism, people are invited to come to Christ, but God never invites people to come. God commands people to come to Christ. An invitation is something that, can, that, 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 can, that you can decline with uh, impunity. But God does not issue an RSVP because our only hope in life and death is Christ. This has been the case of every one of these testimonies that we've seen. Jesus coming, kicking down doors, and rescuing people. Some out of morally good, religious, I got everything together, and some out of some very broken, depraved situations. Jesus steps into our broken, messed up lives and he snatches us out. Only the gospel has the power to redeem these kinds of situations. So what the jailer saw was astounding. He essentially says, I want that kind of story in my life. I want to be able to handle suffering like that. I want to be able to handle abuse like that. He's saying, I've never seen people with such integrity. So he's asking why didn't you get your freedom at the expense of my death? So his greatest concern was honor. There was nobody who was going to escape on his watch. His greatest concern was his honor. So he was willing, he was planning on dying. He was not going to go to Caesar or, or be reported to Caesar as, as not uh, being faithful. So he's asking, why did you... Why didn't you get your freedom at the expense of my death? And the answer is, we already have our freedom at the expense of the death 
of another. Another who has already given up his life voluntarily. Let me tell you about him. And his life was changed forever. So what do we learn from this kind of thing, from these kinds of things, situations, these three separate salvation stories? I think it's this. The gospel is for everyone. It's for everyone. The morally good and the morally broken. And with that comes the third point, which is a long point. So I've already instructed them to kind of cycle through this twice to make sure you have plenty of time to write it down. The second part of it, you should know. God is building a family of many different types of people from all sorts of backgrounds and cultures. This family has been redeemed and united to treasure Christ together, become more like Him together, and share His gospel together. There is no religious type. If you were a person sitting in this room, and you're saying, well, I'm just not the born-again type. I'm not the religious type. As you, as you can see, the gospel is not just for the religious types. But as we well know, religious types really need it badly. Because in reality, we're kind of screwed up. In fact, you could argue that the religious types need the gospel more than the unreligious. So Luke is trying to tell us that there is no type of person. For example, there's no racial type. You know there's at least three different types of people here, ethnic, uh, racial, racially diverse you know, people here, at least three. Lydia was from Thyatira. She was probably Middle Eastern. She probably looked Middle Eastern. She looked Indian. The slave girl could have been anybody. I mean, she was a slave. She, she's brought in from anywhere. Uh, and the jailer was Rome, which he was probably Roman, uh, probably European. But there, but, but here we have all these different races. And you know, Christianity is really the only religion that has never been dominated by one part of the world. Islam's demographic and geographic center has always been the Middle East and Arabia. Uh, Hinduism's demographic and geographic center has always been India. Uh, Confucianism, Confucianism, China. Buddhism, Asia. But Christianity started in the Middle, started in the Middle East, Middle Eastern re, region, centered in Jerusalem at the center for the Jews. Then it migrated. Its demographic and geographic center became the Middle Eastern Hellenistic world. Then it migrated to Northern Europe and then to North America. And now we know that there are more African Christians and, and, and Asian Christians, thinking Korea and Chinese Christians, there are more African uh, and, and Chinese and Korean Christians than all of Europe and North America Christians combined. Even if you count the nominal Christians, again, kind of like Lydia, who probably weren't Christians. And so why? Jesus 
because Christianity isn't a religion for a certain type of person. There is no culture that it's native to. There is no personality type. It's not for the rich or the poor or for men or women only. It's not just for the wimps or the ambitious. It's not just for the moral types or the immoral types. It's not based on any human type whatsoever. And if you are a Christian and you look around and say, well, that person over there, they really aren't the type that would become a Christian. If you lose hope for anybody, or if you show contempt for anybody, I'm not convinced that you really know you are a sinner saved by grace. You're more religious than you are a Christian. And God is using the redemptive work of the gospel to unite these different types of people for mission. And, and he gives us a sense of family. You know, nothing unites like the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I'm not saying that we've always made the best use of this as Christians. Uh, I'm not saying that there hasn't been segregation. I'm not saying there hasn't been all sorts of injustices. Because clearly there has been. I had a conversation with... Uh, a pastor of an African-American black church here in town, and we got into a discussion, and we both agree that, that the reason the black church exists in North America and in, in, in America is because the white church failed to be the church. But look what the gospel can do when we draw upon it. We know this about Paul. There was an ancient prayer that Jewish men prayed in the morning. And it's a very controversial prayer that went something like this. Oh Lord, I thank you that you did not make me, what does it say? A woman, a slave, or a Gentile. Which means here is Paul. Pharisee in his former life who would have for years woken up in the morning and prayed this kind of daily prayer saying, Oh Lord, I'm so grateful that I'm not like this. I'm not like those women. I'm not like those slaves. I'm not like those Gentiles. And uh, the irony of God and his work in the gospel is that the first three conversions of this new church in Philippi are a woman, a slave, and a Gentile. And now they are his family. And what changed Paul? What power can bring people like that together? Verse 35 and when it was day, the magistrate sent the police saying, uh, let, let those men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, The magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, They have beaten us publicly, uncondemned men who are Roman citizens, and have thrown us into prison. And do they, know, and do they now throw us out secretly? No. 
Let them come themselves and take, and take us out. So the police reported these words to the magistrates, and they went afraid. They, they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them. By the way, it's not something you see very much in the book of Acts, uh, where Paul is beaten, he's persecuted, and they come and say, Sorry. So they took them out, and they asked them to leave the city. And so they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. Verse 47 uses that phrase or term, brothers. Brothers, plural. A whole bunch of people church planted. About 10 years later, Paul writes to the Philippians, by the way, from another jail, in his most joyful letter of the whole New Testament, commending them, this church, for their generosity, for their love of the gospel. And you just have to wonder, when they read this letter to the congregation, you have to wonder who read it. Maybe it was Lydia. Maybe it was the slave girl. Maybe it was the jailer. Quite possibly somebody from their families. Who knows? So, Paul, writing in Philippians chapter 1, he begins this letter to the church at Philippi in this way. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you, all making my prayer with joy. Because, you, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now, and I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you, and he began it right here in Acts chapter 16, will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. I mean, what a privilege it is to know this God through Jesus. We are recipients of great grace, aren't we? The Lord has opened our, high, our hearts. He's freed us from the power, by the power of Jesus, and He's brought us into a community. And what He has started. He will bring into completion. And he's come to us, people of different groups, different types, different backgrounds, busted, not so busted, you know. And he's going to bring it to completion. And we can long for that day. And so Acts 16 is encouraging, encouraging us as we identify with these three different types of people Encouraging us to set our eyes on Jesus, to follow his guidance, to make his name known, to trust in his power, and to keep doing this until we see him again. And until that day, may God give us peace, give us grace, show us grace as we navigate through this world and we encounter people with gospel hospitality, 
with boldness. Also knowing that there are people that God has elected before the foundations of the world who are waiting on us to share the gospel with them so that they can hear Christ and repent and believe. Man, we've got work to do. But this work flows from understanding what God has done for us. That we were once sinners, we are sinners, and he shows us grace. God, show us more grace. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you for your kindness. We thank you for your mercy that you show us in Christ. We thank you for coming in, sovereignly coming in and busting down doors of our hearts, Father, where we think we had, maybe, maybe for us, we're, we're like Lydia, we think we had things figured out. We think we're uh, pr- pretty good, we're morally upright, but we, but we didn't know Christ. We didn't surrender our lives to him. We didn't really believe and trust and rest in the finished work of Christ. Maybe we're like the, like the slave girl given over to uh, licentious, just a licentious life uh, and, to, and to sin. Maybe we're, we're like the jailer. We're bitter. We're angry. Um, wherever that may be, Father, wherever we think we might have been, Father, we thank you for coming in and rescuing us. Father, I pray that out of the encouragement of knowing what this church plant was like, Father, you would stir us to be a church that seeks to be multi-ethnic, trans-cultural community, Father, where we show grace and hospitality to others, Uh, in our midst, and we encourage one another and we stir one another on to treasure Christ, to become more like him together and to share his gospel to the ends of the earth, Father. We need your help. We need grace. We ask for that today. Amen.